0: We're starting a series um, that will take a long time on Sunday mornings to go through, and I feel a bit like a starter with a starting gun this morning. And the race that's going to be started, if we're not careful, is a marathon. Now, unlike a marathon, our hope is, at the end of it, having preached our way through the book of Luke, rather than being exhausted if you make it to the end, you will be encouraged, motivated, and have far more energy... In your pursuit of Jesus Christ than when we started. I'd be very disappointed if that, if that isn't the case. I really do hope that we're not exhausted and fed up with it by the time we get to the end. Um, we are in good company. John Calvin took a year to preach through um, the book of Luke, and, and at Miles Hill Church in America, they took three years to go through it. So um, that's what we're planning to do. And um, these are one of the few occasions where you are actually allowed to read the notes in advance, at least the first page. So if you just want to eye down while I'm waffling away for the first minute, you can look at that because that's an introduction to what we're doing. And the more astute of you will have noticed that uh, inside this um, flyer for our series, there are some weeks where we will not be doing the Book of Luke on a Sunday morning. Chiefly, if there's a celebration or an area celebration or something like that next week, for example, there may be another theme. But actually, every now and again, we're going to put a a non-Luke Sunday because we want to try and respond to what God's saying in the immediate as well. There's always a balance in designing a teaching program with trying to find out what God wants to say to the church and going with that. And so things can be thematic in our preaching Uh, but also making sure there's a bedrock of the word of God as given to us in the Bible that's preached as well. And there's this balance between the now word, what God wants to say to us now, and what's always true. And so we actually hope that both will come out in the book of Luke as we go through this. So my purpose this morning is really just to say a little bit of background about Luke the person a little bit about the background, about the book itself or the writing, and then just to give an overview, if you like, a taster of what's coming up. And there's a good reason for doing that. So um, please, uh, you know, if you're not careful, this could end up as like a trailer. And of course, the trailer you know, has, has its sort of disadvantages. This is not a trailer. This is the real thing as well. Okay? Just be clear about that. It's a trailer for the next year, but it is the real thing as well. It really is the word of God we're looking at. So, um, of course, I'm a teacher, as you, you might have picked up. Um, let's start with Luke the man. And uh, can anybody tell me something interesting about Luke? It's that one there. And we'll just see where we go. A little bit of audience participation. Don't open your study Bible at this point, okay? Anyone, anyone tell me something interesting they know about Luke? He was a doctor. He was a doctor, yes? Very good. He's called a physician uh, in Colossians chapter 4. He's a Gentile? He was a Gentile. Very good. Let's look at that. Luke the man. Now, like all of the Gospels, they are technically anonymous in that the writing itself doesn't say who wrote it. Unlike most of Paul's letters, for instance... None of the Gospels actually directly tell us who wrote them. And that's true of Luke as well. One of the important things to realize is that Luke's Gospel is part one and part two is the Acts of the Apostles. And it's pretty clear they were written by the same person. They have the same prologue, the same introduction. We'll look at that in a minute. And uh, stylistically, they're very, very similar in the way that the Greek is written. It's pretty clear that Acts was written by one of Paul's companions. Indeed, from about just over halfway through, the language when describing Paul's journeys moves to we. So the person writing it was there. We went here. We found that the island we were shipwrecked on was called Malta. Whoever wrote it was there with Paul. And, of course, accents fairly abruptly with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And if we look at the two or three places in the New Testament where Luke is specifically mentioned... Luke was one of Paul's companions, and actually it says at the end of 2 Timothy, which Paul wrote from Rome, Luke alone is still with me. So there's a good case to be made that Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and actually from almost the earliest part of church history, that's never really seriously been questioned, it's just been assumed. That he was a Gentile can be inferred It's a fascinating little passage in at Colossians 4, at the end of Colossians 4, where Paul lists his companions and he makes a distinction between the Jewish ones and Luke. He doesn't explicitly say he was a Gentile, but he calls the other companions as uh, men of the circumcision. And then he talks about Luke. So kind of the inference is he's not Jewish. How amazing that is, that a significant portion of the New Testament was not written by someone with a Jewish background. How important might that might be in understanding one of the key themes we'll come to in a minute about Luke is the gospel is for all people, that the person who brings that out was himself, not Jewish. A little fragment in the second century may be written as early as 100 years after Luke's life called the Anti-Martinite Prologue says this it's like a little introduction written in the front of a copy of the book of Luke, Luke, and it says this: Luke was an Antiochine he 's from Antioch, okay Syrian. Antioch's in Syria, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom. Remember that little verse? Luke alone is still with me, serving the Lord. Blamelessly. He never had a wife. He never fathered children. And he died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit in Boetia, which is in Greece. What a fantastic guy, if that's true. And certainly since that was written, there's never been a serious doubt in church history that Luke is the author of this work. But what a testimony. 84 years old and still full of the Holy Spirit. I think when I'm 84, I'd love that to be said of me. Still full of the Holy Spirit. Having served the Lord blamelessly. I'd love that said of me. Following Paul, serving another one's mission and vision for all those years. Actually, just, just sense this morning, for one or two of us, that's an important word. Your mission might be facilitating somebody else's mission. Your mission might be facilitating somebody else's mission. And maybe only God will know that. But isn't it fantastic that this guy, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him and reading what he wrote? Okay, moving on. So that's a little bit about Luke the man. I love it. A faithful servant, detailed in his writing, scholarly in his writing, a clever guy if he's a physician. But in the middle of the action as well, if you read Acts. Okay, the Gospel of Luke, the book itself. So, this is all just by, by way of introduction. Can anybody tell me anything about the book itself, the writing? Don't even know which one of these I'm supposed to have now. Eh? Okay, hands up if you know, without looking at your study Bible, anything interesting or unique about. Steve, you've got your Bible open. Anything interesting or unique about the book of Luke? John. longest gospel it's not only the longest gospel it's the longest book in the new testament (sighs) anything else together with acts the same author has is the single author who's written more of the new testament than anybody else okay again from a gentile that's amazing the longest book in the New Testament. Together with Acts, Luke is the author who's written the highest proportion of a single author of the New Testament. Nearly half of what he says appears to be just quoting what Jesus said. Common question, do you know what Jesus really said? Well, if you read the book of Luke, you will find out. And sometimes We can get interpreted stuff to us, all of which is really good, and I shall interpret the word of God to you, but sometimes we just need to go back and read what Jesus said. I've been doing that on and off over the summer, and you know, it speaks. And in reading Luke, we are reading nearly half of it is just what Jesus said, and it's sometimes good just to go right back to source material and find out what he really said. And that's one of our hopes in Luke There's a significant amount of stuff written in the book of Luke that isn't anywhere else in the New Testament or in the other Gospels. And if this man had not been careful in writing it down, we wouldn't have it. Just give you three examples. The story of his birth, Christmas. Most of that is in Luke. Imagine the Christmas story Without all the prophetic lead up to it and John the Baptist being born and all of that as well and Mary's song and the angels and the shepherds. And then what happens at the temple afterwards and all that prophetic insight there. None of that is anywhere else. It's only in Luke. The ascension of Jesus Christ. We sometimes miss that actually. Um, If you stick to a church calendar, we can normally find a Sunday nearby when we celebrate Christmas. And we've got Christmas Day as well. And uh, we can find an Easter Sunday. But the Ascension Day normally gets slipped in on a Thursday or something, doesn't it? And we can miss it. But the Ascension is only recorded in Luke and in Acts. It's not anywhere else. Important. And the parables. Luke's got more parables than all of the other Gospels. And a number of them that are only in Luke. And if I was to take a straw poll as to which you think is the most widely known and loved of Jesus' parables, in your top three, probably most people would say the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. They're only in Luke. We wouldn't have them if it hadn't been for Luke. The good Samaritan story. The person who is my neighbor is the person who I least think it is. The prodigal son, God's father heart for the lost. We wouldn't have those without Luke. Okay, those of you who like things to be orderly, Luke is really nice and orderly as well. And, uh, but it's a story as well, it's a narrative. And so Luke takes us carefully and systematically through the events of Jesus' life in order. Now, of course, there's more than one way of conveying truth. It can be done thematically, or it could be done sequentially. And Luke goes the sequential route. He starts with introducing who this Jesus person, the central character of this whole narrative is, and his preparation time for his ministry, and then his ministry where he starts mainly doing miracles. And then in the area of Galilee, but from about chapter 9 onwards, his focus turns towards Jerusalem. And even from before halfway through the book, there starts to be a focus of his journey towards his death. Along the way, he teaches. And then at the end of the story, in Jerusalem, and the events leading up to his death and his death. I find it interesting um, that if you look at his ministry, he spent the first part doing rather than talking. That's not entirely true. But it was was demonstrating what it was he was going to say. Actually, it could just be something for us as well. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom of God and then talked about it. Okay, let's just be careful not to get caught up with too many words when we should be doing. And the way in for people often is to see the good news of Jesus embodied in action before having it all explained. Now there's just a balance there I just want to address. Okay, so let's actually get to the scripture. If you've got a Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 this morning. Look at that briefly, what it tells us. And then I'm going to go through seven themes to look out for in Luke. There are more than seven, but I just picked seven. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, I've put it up on the screen, and that's in the ESV version, um, which I shall read from. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's not possible to say it in one breath, but those four verses are one sentence in the Greek. And for first century Greek, it's one of the most fantastic bits of technical writing in Greek. It's superb. Let's see what from here then. Luke was written to a person. We don't know who Theophilus was, where he lived, and perhaps... What I would really like to know is why he or why Luke saw the need for him to receive this account in such detail. It would have been good to know that. And there's been various speculations. One, perhaps slightly fanciful one, is that Theophilus was a legal man and he needed a briefing for Paul's trial in Rome in order to defend him. That would make sense of uh, why Acts, because Luke and Acts go together, just suddenly stops with Paul under house arrest in Rome it makes sense why if you read through Acts most of the disciples are hardly mentioned and Peter fades out of the picture really quickly and then it's all about Paul it makes sense of why the Romans in general are putting quite a good light in Luke's writings they look on Paul quite favorably and Roman governors generally seem to be pretty good I'm not sure I entirely buy it because I just don't know that a defense counsel would really need to have known all of Jesus's parables So I'm just not sure about that. And also, I just don't know how long it would have taken Luke not only to have written this, but to have done all the research and compiling together to have written it and whether he'd have had enough time. But it's a nice story. We don't know. We don't know who Theophilus was. But we can assume he was a man of high social standing. The title most excellent was normally used of a governor, a civic leader of some sort. He was probably a Gentile. It's a Greek name. Theophilus means lover of God. So maybe he was a God-fearing Gentile, quite possibly in Antioch. And he did have some prior knowledge of the things that Luke wrote, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Notice just a couple of things. Luke is writing a narrative of these things. Um, in Greek, that means a, a commentary containing descriptive detail. In other words, it's an account of events, and actually one of several. But it's got a clear purpose and overall message. It's not just verbatim. It's carefully organized. It's not just a verbatim reportage. But it does involve a synthesis into a coherent story as well. It's a narrative. I uh, can't go into all the structure of Luke, but it's beautifully put together. Notice that the events Paul, sorry, that Luke is talking about are based on eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, kind of in brackets, the disciples. Okay. So Luke wasn't an eyewitness to these things, but he clearly got the material from those who were. And indeed, that word delivered. Ministers of the words who have delivered them, these things. Delivered actually means the passing on of tradition. So it's like oral tradition, but just like one, one leap of it from those who were first-hand witnesses. Notice also that Luke spent a lot of time studying and putting it together in an orderly account. And Luke actually goes to great trouble a bit later on to give credibility to his narrative, to nail it down into the public history of the world at the time. And in fact, there's a little example of that if you read ahead to the next verse, chapter 5, when he tells us when this was written, when these events happened. But here's the thing. His purpose was that Theophilus might be more certain about what he already knows about Jesus Christ. He wasn't coming to it blind. He knew stuff already. Luke's purpose, and whatever the wider context of that is, we don't know, was that he would be more certain. That word there means steadfast, it means unable to fall. What a good goal for this year of going through Luke, that at the end of it we are more certain about Jesus Christ. That we're more certain. That's a good reason for studying. Is it doubt? Doubt can be part of the journey of becoming more certain. I don't want to deny that. It's true. But the goal is to be more certain. So doubts are okay. God can handle those, but it's not a place to stay. See, doubt may be part of the process. And doubt can operate on us at the level of, if you like, the cerebral level, is something true or not. Doubts work. Is this true or not? About well, true, that's kind of a up there sort of level. But actually, it can work on us at the level of our experience, an existential sort of level. Is this real? Does it work? Is it relevant? We might believe the Bible to be true, but actually, in our experience, it's not actually terribly relevant, or it doesn't seem to work for me. So doubt can creep in there. And doubt can also creep in at the level of our motivation. Even if something's true and even if I know it works, is it really worth it? It's quite an important. Now, I don't know. This could get a little bit embarrassing. Wave your hand if you've had doubts at the level of, I know this is true and I know it's it works, but is it really worth giving my life to following Jesus Christ? Anybody had that sort of doubt? Right. But you see, I think what Luke writes is to try and make us more certain in all three of those areas. That we become more certain in what we believe to be true. That we become more certain actually in our everyday experience that it works and that it's relevant. And thirdly, I would like to think that at the end of going through Luke, We will be more motivated and understand that this is a life worth living. That's the goal. So what was it that Luke really wanted to convey to Theophilus? Here are some themes, and I've got seven of them. There are more to look out for. Now, this could end up being a bit like a spoiler alert, okay? And, of course, the problem with that is if I tell you what's coming up, you might not bother to come back next time. Um, or you might fall asleep, think it's okay to fall asleep because you've heard it all. That's not the point of me doing this now. Um, and I hope it's not like anybody been to the cinema, you've seen a trailer, and, you know, you think, that is an amazing film, I've got to go and see that. And when you actually get there and watch it, you think... All the best bits really were in the trailer, and I, I got it all in two minutes, and that the film is sadly lacking in comparison. That, would you like to say which film that happens to them with? Um, anyone? <laughs> no, that could get a bit partisan, but, but that happens, doesn't it? You know, the two-minute trailer is the most exciting bits of it, and that's all there is. Um, so that I hope, I really hope and pray that's not going to happen now either. That in telling you the most exciting bits, then, then, then you'll think you've got it all. And this is not an executive summary either. As far as I can see, executive summaries are like a single sheet of paper given to executives so they don't have to, have to listen to the talk. And it's not that either. Sorry if there are any executives here. But it's like, you know, it's the, the bullet points. This is it. You don't need to listen to the rest. You do need to listen to the rest, And the reason I want to tell you these things is, if we go through Luke passage by passage by passage, week by week, it's sometimes, in the detail, easy to miss overall themes, overall things that keep coming up over and over again. Sometimes in just looking at the individual piece, we don't see that that fits. And this is coming back again. This is it being said again. This is it coming out again. And so I at least want to alert you to seven things to look out for, for when they keep coming up. Because part of this narrative is a narrative. It's a whole picture. And we are supposed to get the whole picture as well as the detail. So, seven things. One of the really key things in Luke is about who, as you might expect, who Jesus is. Who is this man? Well, Luke's clear... that he was a man, fully human. But also, he's clear that he is the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, that he's the Lord, that he's the King. He is the Holy One, and perhaps most importantly, that he is the Savior. Look out for it. It keeps coming up again and again. But I like this. The Christ of God. That title is declared of him by angels, by demons, by men, and even by himself. The Christ of God. And what that means is something like this. The one from God on whom the Spirit is. Christos means the anointed one. Okay, To save people and set them free. All of that expectation is built into that title. The one we're talking about is that the Christ of God, the one, the promised one, God gonna send to his people, on whom the Spirit of the Lord is to set people free and save them. So first thing, who was Jesus? Of course, these are all linked. second thing that comes out in Luke time and time again is Jesus' mission and purpose. Salvation and redemptive change in every area of life for all people. That's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll say it again. Salvation and redemptive change, that is, putting back to right all the mess. That's what redemption means, essentially. It means something more technical than that, but it's essentially... Pragmatically putting put, putting right what's been messed up in every area of life for all people. And the key motto, if you like, is this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Spoken at Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, a lost man who Jesus saved, and in the same story, we even see some of the fruit of the turning round and the saving that Jesus brought to him. The Son of Man, if there's one thing that some one little phrase that identifies Jesus's mission and purpose, it's this: the Son of Man, and He spoke it Himself, came to seek and save the lost. The idea, this idea of salvation, of saving is more deeply embedded, far more de- deeply embedded in Luke than in any other of the Gospels, just in terms of the language. Even the noun salvation as a concept is found in Luke several times, but it's not even mentioned in Matthew or Mark, for example. Jesus is given the title of Savior. In fact, Simeon, in prophesying over him, calls him salvation. It's almost a name. And the verb to save is used many times in Luke, far more than in any others of the gospel. It's a key theme. So as different people speak throughout the year, let's keep our ears alert about Jesus saving in lots of different ways from lots of different things. Because the, uh, the salvation bought by Jesus is both holistic, that means deals with the whole person, it's holistic, Saved from the salvation for those who are economically oppressed, those exploited, socially inherited, physically disabled, those bound in sin, those morally and spiritually bruised, whatever. Salvation is for all of those things in Luke. But it's also Inclusive. In terms of gender, social class, economic status, age, race, whatever other division is there in society, Jesus cuts across it all and says salvation is for you. Demonstrates it. So salvation brought by Jesus is holistic, deals with everything, and inclusive is for everyone. Next one, moving through, third one. Jesus' concern of kind of i um, touched on this really, but it's just worth picking out as we read the narratives of Jesus' encounters with people, how often he deals with the people that other people wouldn't think he would deal with at the time. The poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the sick, the sinner. He goes and seeks and seeks them out. Look for that. Now you know where I'm heading with this when we get to the end because this has implications for us, of course. But Jesus' mission, his concern was for those on the edge. Not those in the middle. Those on the edge. Jesus' kingdom is a theme. His authority over every realm. Jesus declared a king. He taught extensively in Luke on the kingdom of God. There's one thing to be said that you're a king. And there's one thing to talk about it. It's quite another to demonstrate it. Okay, but actually Jesus did all three. He was entitled a king. He taught about what the kingdom of God, his kingdom is like. But he demonstrated kingdom authority with acts of power, particularly in that first section of his ministry whilst in Galilee. And in just one fairly short section, he shows his authority over the spirit realm, casting out demons, his authority over death, raising a dead person to life, and authority over creation itself. If you've got authority over the spirit realm, over death, And over the created order, there's not much that you're not king of. See, Jesus is portrayed as a king. He spoke his kingdom and demonstrated his kingdom. Announced it and announced it in word and deed. Keep watching for that. Not just for the word kingdom of God as we go through the year, but also demonstrations that this is the kingdom of God here and now being demonstrated, his rule. Big theme, okay, there you go. Authority over the spirit realm, authority over death, and authority over the created order. There's a big theme of Jesus, as you'd expect, really. But Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection is actually a developing theme through Luke, there are hints of it from less than halfway through, and it, there's a growing momentum towards it. It's a significant, significant, significant event. The death of Jesus is very itself is a very significant moment, and Luke documents it in a lot of detail. And whilst the full significance, in terms of salvation, of Jesus' death and resurrection is not fully explained in Luke's gospel. It is nonetheless linked in Luke's gospel to the forgiveness of sins and deliverance available for all people. That is there. But, of course, part two acts through Paul's preaching gives very clearly the full significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. I don't know, but um, a few years ago, less heard now, but there was a kind of a a tussle in some theological circles about, well, Jesus' gospel was the gospel of the kingdom, and Paul's gospel that he preached was a later deviation that he changed because it's to do with substitutionary atonement and all that sort of stuff. And actually, he isn't being true to Jesus' gospel. So what we call the gospel isn't what Jesus preached at all. Anybody ever heard of that sort of thing? Yeah. For me, a strong reply to that is to say you get both in Luke's writing. Luke unifies those. Luke, the companion of Paul who understood his theology and documented it to a certain extent in recalling what Paul preached, is also the same Luke who documented Jesus' teaching on the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. For me, it's inconceivable that an intelligent man like him would see that those things contradict each other or there isn't a unity between them. They're not the same, but they're not opposed either. Quickly, two more. Two more themes to look for. Jesus' death, the activity of the Holy Spirit. All the key events in Jesus' life, particularly in the early parts of Luke, are marked by the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Annunciation, the Conception, his affirmation from the Father. He's led by the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit quite explicitly. The Holy Spirit is around when Jesus is around. And another theme... Jesus promises that same Holy Spirit for his disciples as well. And this leads on to my last thing in a second. In order that they carry out his mission of preaching repentance and forgiveness and declaring and demonstrating the kingdom. So the Holy Spirit, his activity in Jesus comes up again and again and again and again. But there's this transfer of the activity of the Holy Spirit from Jesus to his disciples, which of course is outworked in more detail after the ascension in the book of Acts. And we must, although we're not going to be looking at Acts, always remember that Luke is just part one. Part two is Acts. Maybe we'll use the following year to look at that. I don't know. Um, But the two do go together. And what's often started in motion in Luke is carried on in Acts. And this is one of those things. That the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that's there right at the beginning of the narrative of Luke, in terms of Jesus' life, is the same Holy Spirit that comes on his disciples for them to do the same thing as Jesus did. And that's outworked in practice in Luke's, but that momentum is kind of kicked off in Luke's gospel. I perhaps should have said, by the way, that whilst we are working right through the book, at Christmas we will do the birth narratives of jesus so next time we look at luke we will not be starting with that we'll actually jump forward a couple of chapters and around easter we'll jump and do those narratives as well so we will be going right through the book but just at two occasions we will take things out of sequence um i'm sorry even though luke wrote them in sequence um we really should have started this series just before christmas if we were going to do that um and gone through it in a year but that, then Easter wouldn't have come at the right time. Anyway, whatever. So there you go. But here's the thing. That momentum is a momentum that involves you and me. Because the final theme to look out for is about discipleship. Jesus' mission is the disciples' mission. And his way is their way of living. So Jesus is portrayed in Luke, as an example to follow. There's more about Jesus praying in Luke than in any other. And we get our models and paradigms for how to pray, a lot of it from Jesus. There's a lot about him suffering. There's a lot about his simple life. You can read into it and actually pick up that he was dependent. His needs were met by others around him. He didn't travel alone. Was part of a team. He delegated within that team. There's something about communal life that keeps coming out. His way of living, his disciples' way of living, his way, our way. But this, his mission, the kingdom authority he has, he gives to his followers, and they get on and preach it and demonstrate it under the power Of the same Holy Spirit. That kicks off in Luke. And it continues. Through Acts. I. I wouldn't want to be seen to be rewriting scripture. But I'm going to anyway. If I was going to write a little motif. I would slightly. Amend. What Jesus said to Zacchaeus, he said to Zacchaeus, "The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, but there's a growing sense in Luke that the followers of the Son and Man are here to seek and save the lost. That's not directly a quote from Scripture, so I'll just deny that, that but that's the heart of it. The followers of the Son of Man, the disciples. Of the Son of Man, not just were there, but are here to seek and save the lost. If in a year's time, or whenever we finish this, we have a church who not only understand in theory, but find that it works and find that it's relevant, and even deeper than that, know that it's worth it to be people who seek and save the lost, we'd have got a hold of what Luke was trying to convey to Theophilus. Now, that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. I hope it's made you hungry for more rather than thinking, well, that's it, I've got it now. I hope the spoiler alert wasn't really a spoiler alert that we're uplifted by knowing what's coming and have got a hunger for it. But you know, the word of God can land in lots of different ways. Can land on hard ground and bounce off. It can land on minds that are not ready to be transformed and renewed. And it can land on hearts that won't receive it. And I wonder what are those who are going to prepare the word of God for you over the next year? But their work is in vain if it doesn't land in a way that it can do its work. And if you're up for it, I'd like us to pray that God would make us receptive to receive his word. And I'm not saying, by the way, that those who are going to preach will be infallible, but the Holy Spirit will help us. But I'd like to posture us at the beginning to receive the word of God over these next months. That it would not only bring truth to us that we can understand or bring clarity or more certainty to what we know. But it brings clarity and more certainty to its relevance. In other words, we experience it. More as well, and that it motivates us. Earlier on, I said that doubt can work at the level of what we know, whether we think something's relevant, and whether we're motivated for it. The Word of God, I believe, can work on all of those things. And I'd like us to pray to be receptive. You're signing yourself up in one sense to be open to the Holy Spirit teaching you as we look at these words over the next year. And that when those things land, you'll be responsive. That in a year's time, the word of God will have borne some fruit in our lives. I'd like us to pray that. I'm going to pray for a minute. I do think also, though, that what's really great about a trailer or perhaps different from this, is not. isn't just a trailer for it. This is the real thing. And actually, the salvation of which we've spoken about is available here and now, today. And that salvation that Luke speaks of is holistic. We've already prayed for those. You need prayer for issues of sickness, and there's still opportunity for that at the end. But if actually you know you need a situation turned round this morning, economically, physically, because you're marginalised, because you're struggling in some way, or because perhaps most importantly at all, you don't know this God, this Jesus of whom we're speaking. Salvation is here today as well. Um, we'd love to leave opportunity for that. But let's pray. Let's pray. If it's in your heart to, to commit yourself to receiving God's word over this next year, let's, let's stand together, shall we? Be good. And I'll just pray. Hand over to Steve. Father, I find it amazing that all these words from so long ago are here with us. But what's even more amazing is they have the power to change us. Lord, we want to commit ourselves to being receptive and come with open hearts and minds to receive your word. That over these next months we might become more certain of what we believe, more certain that what we believe about Jesus Christ is relevant, and more certain and confident. in that we're part of your mission that of which it speaks. Lord, different ones of us, you will speak different things to us, no doubt, but we want to commit ourselves to receiving your word and allowing it to do the purpose for which you intend it in our lives and in us communally as part of your people. As your word comes to this part of your people, Lord, we commit ourselves as your people to receive it and let it change us. Please help us in that in every practical and spiritual way to engage and be receptive with you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.